Luke 7, 36 to 50 this morning. Let me pray for us just briefly before we come to the preaching of God's word. Father in heaven, we do thank you for every word that you have breathed out. We thank you especially, Lord, for the portions of your word such as that in front of us that is so full of the grace of Christ, that is so full of how tender and merciful you are, Lord Jesus, that is so motivating and captivating. And so we pray that you would do a great work of grace in us. We pray that you would do for us what you did for the woman in this passage, that you would draw us to the Savior, acknowledging our sinfulness, acknowledging his mercy and grace, that you would give us a great sight of the Savior this morning. Father, we pray that you would give us new glimpses of the glory and the mercy and the beauty of Jesus Christ and that you would draw us to him. And so we pray that you would especially do this in the preaching of your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. Luke, the beloved physician, has been tracing the ministry of the Lord Jesus. He has uh, most recently told us of Jesus's dealings with the sick, how he healed so many that came to him with uh, our incurable diseases, and how he forgave those that came to him acknowledging their sin. And, and then last week we noted how he defended his forerunner, um, John the Baptist, who was in prison and who was wondering whether Jesus was indeed the long-awaited Redeemer. Uh, of whom all the scriptures had spoken, and Jesus both restored and then defended the ministry of John. Now, Luke records for us this account. He says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of that city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him. She's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, got to love that. Jesus knows what he's thinking in his heart, and so he answers him. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. I would like to meet that money lender. Um, God is that money lender here in this account. Now, which of them will he love more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? 
And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I think it is a common experience of all men that we are moved and motivated when we hear the story of someone do some great either heroic or charitable act. Uh, When we hear about someone giving millions of dollars to hurricane relief, we tend to talk about that to all of our friends. Wasn't that great that so-and-so gave so much money or they had a fundraiser for this or they did that and wasn't it wonderful how this person did this or that or or any number of things. We tend to find uh, those stories of what we consider to be the great things and then we tend to talk about them with others who also think they're great things and Silently, we wish we could do great things like they were doing, and and on and on we go. And that's just a common experience in humanity and among us as fallen sinners. Um, Here, in this account, we have one of the greatest acts that anyone has ever done. We have a prostitute coming and weeping at the feet of the Savior and washing his feet with her hair. Um. It may be one of the most motivating accounts in all of human history. The woman's not actually doing anything. She's not actually, uh, uh, in one sense, benefiting anyone. She's not doing an act of philanthropy or humanitarian aid. Um, She's acknowledging that she's a sinner, and she's recognizing that Jesus is a savior. And she's recognizing that he is a savior for such a one as her. And she is demonstrating the love that she has for him because of what he's done for her. And it becomes one of the most motivating, if not the most motivating, of accounts in the entirety of the Gospels. Now, there are two individuals in this account beside the Lord Jesus. There is Simon the Pharisee at whose house this dinner is occurring. You might want to think this more of a block party than a house in someone's house in these days. In the first century in the ancient Near East, when someone threw a dinner party, it was more of a block party. They invited lots of people. There was an open invitation. People flocked to these dinner parties from all over, and they would oftentimes last for several days. That's the sort of dinner party that we're looking at here. And here we have, and Luke tells us at the outset, we have a Pharisee. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, you know that Pharisees are not the friends of Jesus or those that love grace. When we uh, want to um, attack another believer for being more rigid than us, we're often saying things like, hey, why don't you stop being such a Pharisee? That, That becomes a byword we tend to use to attack other people. It's because the Pharisees hated Jesus. Uh, The Pharisees are at the head of the group of people who called for Jesus' crucifixion. They were the religious leaders in Israel. They were the ones, Jesus will tell us later on in Luke's gospel, that they were lovers of money. They were affluent. They were religious. They had political investments. Now, before you you hate the Pharisees, let me say this this morning. I had a friend many years ago who said to me, I think most... um, dads in most evangelical churches in America would be happy if their daughter married a Pharisee because they were fiscally responsible, they were socially conservative, and they were religious. I do want you to think about that for a moment. They are not held out as an example of people we want to emulate, but in America, 
in, in sort of our moral majority culture and what, what was of it as we have moved away from it still. In the evangelical church, there are a lot of dads who would be very happy if their daughters married a man who was fiscally conservative, socially conservative, and who was religious, whether he loved Jesus or not. Now, before we go and hate on the Pharisees, let me say this at the outset, not all the Pharisees were as equally as reprehensible as others. We sometimes have a tendency to find the extreme cases. When we read in the Gospels, we read about uh, different Pharisees who were plotting about Jesus's, how to put Jesus to death. These are the really bad Pharisees. But, but the Pharisees on the whole, was, it was a very large social class of individuals. It was like belonging to a fraternity, perhaps. Not everybody was the same. And here is a Pharisee who is at least open to the idea of having Jesus in his home. Now, Jesus has risen in popularity at this point in his ministry. He's also uh, risen in animosity. Remember, as he grew in popularity, sinners, the sick, the needy, the poor, the weak, those who recognized their need for him came to him, trusted in him, called on him. And at the same time as his popularity grew, the animosity and the hostility grew against him. And yet, here is a picture of a man who, who belongs to that group who were not uh, most favorable to Jesus. And notice that Luke tells us one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. Now, uh, it might be that this man, Simon, the Pharisee, wanted to have a noted rabbi in his house. That might have been his motivation. He, he knew that Jesus was growing in popularity, and he thought, well, it'd be nice to have this popular religious leader, teacher, over, and, and that, you know, that'll show that I care about the people, and I care about the people that they care about. That might have been what motivated him. He might have had Jesus over just out of interest. He might have had Jesus into his home um, just to find out more about him. Who is this one that everybody's talking about? going to invite him over and I'm going to learn more about him. What we're going to learn at the end of this passage is that Simon was not interested in trusting in Jesus. Simon was not having Jesus into his home because he wanted to believe on Jesus as the Redeemer and the Christ. He was not coming to Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins. Um, that's going to become very evident to us uh, when we see the way in which Simon views what Jesus does toward this woman. Now, this morning we want to see three things as we consider this really amazing account of Jesus' dealing with this sinful woman. First, we want to consider the extravagant display of a redeemed sinner's love. The extravagant display of a redeemed sinner's love. Secondly, we want to consider the self-righteous censure of a redeemed sinner. And then finally, we want to consider the self we want to consider uh, Jesus' defense, the gracious vindication of a redeemed sinner. We'll notice that Luke tells us one of the Pharisees had invited Jesus into his home. Jesus went to the Pharisee's home. By the way, just as an aside, I actually think it's very interesting that the Savior, who knew all things and knew what men were thinking and knew uh, their motives, we're actually going to see this in this account, he knew exactly what Simon was thinking internally. Wow. Um, he knows what you're thinking internally. Um, Jesus knew everything. He knew what was in man. He didn't need anybody to testify to him about man. He knew that Simon wasn't inviting him over because Simon wanted to trust in him. Nevertheless, Jesus went to his home. I find that to be a very interesting thing. You know, if you talk to any ministers or anyone in ministry who's been in ministry for any length of time, 
One of the things that they'll probably tell you is um, how tired they are of spending time going to events or spending time with individuals who have no desire whatsoever of actually coming and being part of a local congregation, responding to the gospel. And yet oftentimes people in ministry get asked to do things that they might not otherwise want to do. Jesus here is setting the example for us. He knows all about Simon, and yet he's willing to go to his home. He's willing to respond. He's willing to give himself. Jesus poured himself out at every turn. He didn't selectively go around and say, well, I'll spend time with this person. I won't spend time with this person. Jesus was invited, and he went to this dinner. And notice that Luke tells us they were reclining at the table. Now, this is super important that we get this historical detail. They were not sitting comfortably in chairs the way we do. And I'm not sure why society took so long to get to the place where we sit comfortably in chairs. They were awkwardly re- reclining on the floor. That's, you know, there was a time when we didn't have forks. It's the same principle. Praise God for whoever made forks. Praise God for whoever decided to sit comfortably in chairs at tables. But here in this society, there would be a big room. There might be pillows down. And they are all awkwardly reclining. And Jesus is reclining here near Simon the Pharisee. And behold, notice this, behold, verse 37, don't miss that little word. Luke is drawing your attention in. That's why he puts that. He doesn't leave it out. He wants you to see what's happening. Behold, look, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she then began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kiss his feet and anoint them with the ointment. Uh, There have been many pastors and theologians that think that this is the same account that you find in Matthew's gospel and in John's gospel. There is a very similar account of another woman who anointed Jesus' feet with the costly oil in the home of a leper named Simon. You can see how confusing this gets. Two Simons, two women anointing Jesus' feet with oil. That's about the extent of the similarity. This, I believe, is a different case. Uh, The case that happens closer to Jesus' crucifixion, where uh, we're told that Mary was anointing his feet with the, the oil for his burial, maybe he had heard about this account. Nevertheless, there is nothing else similar about this account. Uh, There have been those that said that this is Mary Magdalene because the Bible says that Jesus cast seven demons out of her. Presumably she was a sinful woman. We don't know a lot about that. There's a lot that people propagate that the Bible doesn't teach. What we do know about this woman, and the text says three times about her, is that she was a sinner. Now, if you're a Christian, you're like, well, I'm a sinner too. Yes. (laughs) If you're not a Christian, you're like, okay, where's this going? Um... Her reputation was such that people in the city looked at her uh, demeaningly and would have said something like she was a woman of the streets. She probably was a prostitute or a call girl of some sorts, and she was known. She was known to Simon. She was known to those around the area, and her reputation was such that three times in this passage, Luke calls her a sinner here. Simon will think internally if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what kind of woman this is that's touching him because she's a sinner. 
And Jesus himself says that this woman whose sins are many is forgiven. So everyone's agreed this woman is a sinner. And this woman is agreed that she's a sinner. There's no question about it. She doesn't think she's a good person. She's not looking for moral reformation. There have been Roman Catholic theologians who have tried to say that this woman cleaned herself up. She used to be a sinner. She used to live this sinful lifestyle, but now she's not. And now in this act of devotion, she's meriting the love and the forgiveness of Jesus. No. This woman is coming as a disreputable person whose reputation has been tarnished because of her willful and egregious sin. She is known everywhere. Now, you may say, yeah, that's not fair. How dare they stigmatize her? You do this all the time. If you're sitting there thinking, how dare they stigmatize this woman? Uh, that's, that's a hypocritical thought. We, in our own sinful, self-righteous hearts, look at others demeaningly and think, they're really bad and I'm not. Actually, Simon's going to teach us a lot about that because he's going to do that very thing. But notice that this woman is showing this extravagant love to the Savior. She's heard about Jesus. No doubt she's heard about his miracles. She's heard how he dealt with the leper. She's heard how he dealt with the paralytic. She's heard how he has dealt with the widow whose son he raised from the dead. She's heard about the kindness and the mercy of Jesus. She's heard that he's a friend of sinners. Notice this. This is very interesting. Notice the very end of the last section, when Jesus is defending John the Baptist in his ministry, he says, John didn't come eating or drinking, and people said, look, he has a demon. The son of man, speaking about himself, came eating and drinking with sinners, and they said, look, a drunkard and a glutton. So Jesus was hanging out with people eating and drinking for the sake of the gospel. People were slandering him for doing that, and in doing so, this is amazing, Jesus takes to himself, I want you to think about this, the infinitely holy God, the Son of God, the God who right now gives you life and breath and all things, who holds your breath in his hand, who created the world and all that's in it, who carries it along by the word of his power, the Jesus in whom everything consists, the eternal Son of God, who was without sin, took to himself the title Friend of Sinners. Not, not that he was buddy-buddy with sinners participating in sin, but that he came into this world to save sinners. Um, Jesus didn't come into this world to save people that thought they were good enough. John Calvin, who some people mistakenly think of as too rigid, is actually very, very, very focused on the grace of God and the gospel. Uh, Calvin, meditating on this, uh, he says... Jesus came into the world to deliver the wretched and the lost. That's why he came into the world. That's the only reason he came into the world. That is the singular reason the Son of God came into the world, is to save the wretched and the lost. I want to say this this morning. Jesus only saves the ungodly. So if you don't think you're ungodly, then you have not come to Jesus for salvation. Jesus only saves the ungodly. That's a scandalous thought. That's a, that's a thought our flesh tends to revolt against in our dignity and our education and 
our wisdom and our insight or whatever experience. Jesus saves the ungodly. This woman has heard that, she's seen something of that, and she comes to Jesus knowing that he would receive such a one as her. Isn't that beautiful? This woman knows that the Son of God will receive such a one as her. She, you get the sense that she, she hears, I know where he is, I'm going to go there. You know, I, I thought about this. Um, we all have our sort of public figures we look up to. Yours might be some political figure or um, some, some media figure or perhaps some pastor or theologian. I know I have, have people I look up to, and, and sometimes I might be at a conference and the people I, I look up to the most are there, and, and I, I, I really want to go up and talk to them, but I'm, I'm sort of nervous about it. Um, you know, you don't know, what if I say something dumb? What if they don't reciprocate? You know, what if I'm like, I really appreciated this, and they're like, okay, thank you, bye. Because <laughs> that's how a lot of them respond, because <laughs> everybody does it to them. Um, here, here's the savior of the world, and this woman doesn't hesitate. She is so filled with a sense that he will receive me, he will forgive me, he is my savior. She flees to him, she stands behind him, she starts weeping, and her tears start running off her face and onto his feet. That's not metaphorical. That's not an analogy. Her tears are literally falling off of her cheeks onto the feet of the Savior. And then she realizes that's happening, and she gets down, and she undoes her hair, which in that day, as you know, was not something you do unless that's an act of intimacy. And she begins to wash the feet of the Savior. And she begins to kiss the feet of the Savior. She is, she is showing extravagant love. And then she has this bottle of what we presume to be expensive perfume. That was one of the valuable things in their day. Now you can just go out to the outlet malls and buy it real cheap. But in their day, that was not the case. And she has this expensive oil, and she begins to pour it extravagantly on the feet of the Savior to clean his feet, as was a custom in those days, to wash the feet of a guest at a table because of the dirty Palestinian floors. And she has no reservation. She has gone directly to the Savior, and she has shown this express and abundant um, display of love and affection. You know what's very interesting about this? Um, this woman, Martin Lloyd-Jones, pointed this out, and, and I had already sort of started to think about this fact that it's unthinkable that any of us would show this to anyone that we've never met before, let alone to a religious leader. You know, everybody's got their sort of their religious leaders they look up to, they've read some self-help book, or they think Gandhi's really awesome. You'd never go do this to some just religious leader out there with their maxims and their self-help books. Um, this woman, Martin Lloyd-Jones, says she, um, she didn't draw near to any of the Pharisees and wash their feet. They were the religious leaders. She didn't go to any of them. She knew that they didn't have what she needed. She didn't need moral reformation. She needed forgiveness and grace and cleansing and salvation. Um, Lloyd-Jones said, that poor sinful woman did not draw near to the Pharisees and wash their feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. No, but she sensed something in the Lord. I want you to linger there for a second. This, 
this woman sensed something in Jesus. Now, if you're a Christian, you have sensed that same thing in the Savior. If you've never sensed that in him, um, you're going to see that you're still in a condition of being unregenerate, uh, like Simon, a position where you're trying to fix yourself, help yourself, clean yourself up, whatever. Um, This woman senses something in the Savior. Um, Lloyd-Jones says she sensed something of his purity. This is a disreputable woman. This is the only man on the planet that isn't going to take advantage of her. You know, I thought it was very interesting. Hollywood suddenly got a a resurgence of a moral compass of some sort over uh, sexual predators, um, and that's the totality of their moral um, awakening. And I thought, you know, isn't it ironic that Hollywood rightly uh, thinks that men in positions of power shouldn't use that to take advantage of women for self-gratification, Right? We agree with that. And yet that same Hollywood hates the only man who ever treated women with perfect dignity and respect and love. Jesus. The Jesus of Scripture. Not the Jesus of society. Not a fake Jesus. This is the one she senses in purity and holiness and love. And so she draws near to him. Lloyd-Jones says, It was his essential difference that attracted her. You know, the church is playing games with the world, trying to attract people with, with everything. Every form of entertainment, every kind of, we're not that different than the world. We are very different than the world because Jesus is very different. The Christ that we proclaim, the Christ we trust, is completely different than the world. And yet, that's the thing that attracts sinners like us to him. That's what really grows the church of Jesus. It's not the gimmicks in the games, it's the Savior. She senses there's something different about him, and so she goes to him. Um, You know, one of the interesting things about this account is here's an unnamed woman who is, we, we never find out her name. Here's an unnamed woman who is uninvited to this party, but she isn't unknown to the Savior. Isn't that beautiful? Here's a woman of disrepute who is not named, who hasn't been invited to this dinner party, and yet she is known to the Savior. Um, Secondly, there's a self-righteous censure of this woman. You know, you get through this part here, and you just want to, just stay there because it just seems like, what if that was it, right? This woman comes up, Jesus tells her, your sins are forgiven. You see this display of affection and love. You then want to emulate that, right? Anybody that's truly trusting Jesus should also want to show such affection and love to Christ, to his people, to his church, um, to use our resources to, to evidence the love that we say that we have for Christ. Um, that, that seems like it would be enough, but no, that, that's just the beginning of this account. Now, here is a self-righteous religious leader, and he is going to censure this woman. Notice, no sooner has she done this, Simon is thinking in himself, 
If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. Here's the really interesting thing. He doesn't first think, what is this woman doing here? She's a sinner. He first attacks Jesus in his inner thought life. Isn't that fascinating? He says, if this man were really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. Isn't that interesting? Self-righteousness always takes aim at the Savior. It always attacks the Savior. Um, It's incompatible for you to have a heart to think, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than these people, and I'm doing my best, and to love Christ. It is absolutely incompatible. You know, the Pharisees didn't think that they were perfect. They didn't think they were sinless. Actually, when you read a lot of the rabbinical writings, you actually see that they were ready to say, yeah, you know, we make mistakes, we, we do wrong. But somehow they, they had this meritorious system of law keeping that if I, if, essentially, if my good works just outweigh my bad works, then I'm going to be okay. And as long as I'm not like these people over here, that's very evident from the gospel records. Remember the Pharisee and the publican and the Pharisee stood and he prayed to himself, God, I thank you. I'm not like other people. I, I fast twice a week. I give of all that I have. I'm very religious. I'm not like this tax collector over here. Who's despicable, despicable. I'm not like him. And Jesus says that guy put his head down and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he was justified, not the Pharisee. This is the same thing. Simon is looking at this woman. He's looking at Jesus He's judging Jesus. He's saying if he was really a religious leader, he wouldn't be letting this woman touch him. He wouldn't be receiving her welcome to him. He wouldn't be, he would tell her to stop and go away. Um, Notice, he thinks that to himself, and Jesus, perceiving his thought and knowing what he was thinking, says to him, Simon, I have something to say to you now. If I were Simon, I'd be freaked out. Like, if I was Simon, and I'm sitting here watching this unfold, here's the Savior, here's this woman, she's doing this thing, and I'm thinking, if this guy was really who he said he was, he wouldn't be doing this. And then Jesus turns and he's like, Nick, I got something to say to you. I'd be like, what? (laughs) I mean, I would be freaked out. And he's like, say it, Lord. You almost sense, like, hesitation there. He's like, yeah, what is it? And, And Jesus tells a parable. Now, before we look at this parable, before we look at Jesus' defense and vindication of this display of love and gratitude, we have to consider the fact that um, this self-righteous censure, um, it's it's indicative of those that seek out offenses. Now, I want to talk to you all this morning who are professing Christians here, who, who consider yourself a Christian. Maybe you've been a Christian for... 20, 30 years, and you've been in conservative churches, you're not in liberal churches, you're not like the liberals, um, and you pride yourself on that, and, um, you know, there is a pernicious evil that dwells in our hearts, and I see it in my heart, and I hate it. And that is how quick we are to look for offenses in others rather than seeing all that's in our own hearts. Now, this man is not focused on himself at all. He's focused on this woman. I'm not like her. 
Yay, me, boo, her. Boo, Jesus. You see, he's looking for offenses. He's zealous to find the offenses so he can criticize them. Some people actually think that they're being faithful to God when they find things wrong out there and they constantly focus on them. That's how, that's how deceptive our hearts are. We can, we can think we're actually most pleasing to God when we're finding things wrong out there. And if I'm not finding enough wrong out there, I'm not being faithful. Isn't that, isn't that subtle? That's exactly what Simon's doing. Um, John Calvin, again, says this narrative shows the, uh, the disposition of this man not only to take but to seek out offenses. He, he, he wants to seek them out. Um, he wants to censure this woman. He wants to keep her from coming freely to the Savior and knowing the fullness of his grace and his love and his mercy and his welcoming of sinners. Um, I want us to consider here, though, Jesus' defense of this display of love and affection and the welcoming of this woman. He tells this parable. One of the very interesting things I had never really thought about before, Derek Thomas pointed this out, um, and I don't know if you've ever noticed this, whenever Jesus tells a parable, somebody's getting set up. I had to think about that. I went through all the parables in Matthew 13, and I was like, that's true. (laughs) Whenever Jesus tells a parable, he's not just saying, hey, let me tell you a little story so that you can relate. I'm all about stories. Hooray. Yay for stories and sermons. He's setting people up. He says to Simon, Simon, let me tell you a story. Got a parable for you. There's two men. They're both debtors. They both owe money. One owes 50 denarii. The other owes 500 denarii. Now, I heard one minister put it this way. If, if you think, if you're, if you're one of those financial types, let's move it here. Um, one of them's drowning in 50 feet of water. One of them's drowning in 500 feet of water. The one drowning in 500 feet of water is not saying, oh, I wish I was only drowning in 50. The one drowning in 50 is not thinking, oh, wonderful. I'm just glad I'm not drowning in 500 feet of water. They are both drowning. They are in debt. They cannot pay the debt. They can't, they're not going to go and, and ask somebody else to borrow money to pay off the debt because then they would be in debt to that person. They are in a hopeless situation. Jesus says there are these two men. They have borrowed money from the same credit lender, money lender, and they're both in debt and they don't have anything to pay and they're up the creek without a paddle. And Jesus says uh, when they can't pay, the, the money lender cancels the debt. I know. I've never heard of it either, but the Savior says it. I believe it. And he's telling us this is what God is like, by the way. God is the money lender who forgives freely the debts of people. That's the point of the story. And, and he says, he says, now, which one, if they both have their debts freely canceled, which one do you think is going to love the money lender that forgave the debt more? It's, it's not hard. Children can understand this one. 500 denarii, let's say that's like $10,000. 50 denarii, 
500 bucks, whatever, you can multiply that. They're both forgiven. Who do you think is going to love them more? Notice, Simon knows the answer. Verse 43, he says, the one, I love this. He says, the one I suppose, I guess. It's like he doesn't want to answer the obvious (laughs) question. I guess the one that's forgiven more. Duh. That's the point. It's very evident. I haven't said duh since I was like 20. I think I maybe said it once. It used to be really popular in the 80s. Um, (laughs) He says, I suppose the one who's forgiven more. And Jesus says, you've supposed correctly. You're right. Obviously, the one who's forgiven more loves more. And then Jesus turns and he points to the woman. She's still sitting there. She's witnessing all this. And Jesus says, Simon, do you see this woman? He said, I came into your house. You haven't given me a glass of water. That was custom. Jesus doesn't, by the way, Jesus is the least self-pleasing person that's ever walked the face of the earth. There's, there's not one account where Jesus is, is taking worldly pleasures to himself, trying to buy bigger houses. I mean, this is one that said the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Wasn't buying fancy new cars. He was not a person that was loving the finer things of life, per se. And yet he's receiving the extravagant love from this woman. And and for the sake of proving this, he says to Simon, I came into your house. You haven't given me any water um, for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. By the way, I was thinking about this. I was like, man, Jesus' brain must have been lightning fast. He puts all this together so quick. You didn't give me water for my feet. She's wet my feet with her tears. You gave me no kiss. She's not ceased to kiss my feet from the time I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil. She's anointed my feet with ointment. Um, Again, Jesus isn't expecting that from Simon, but what he's showing is that Simon's actions show that Simon does not have his sins forgiven. Simon's actions show that he doesn't think he's that sinful. Simon's actions show that he doesn't think he's a great debtor. Simon's actions show that he doesn't think Jesus is the savior of sinners. Simon's actions show that he doesn't love Jesus, that he doesn't care about Jesus, that he doesn't care about others, that he doesn't want others to know Jesus. Um, And here, in in the realest and truest sense, the old adage, actions speak louder than words, holds true. Jesus is saying, your failure to do any of these basic things shows that you don't think you need your sins forgiven, that you don't think you're a debtor. And this woman knows exactly what she is. Now, it's very interesting. Jesus tells this story, and, you know, he gives that one owed 500, one owed 50. And you're left. There's a lot of questions that this passage opens. One of those questions is Jesus saying that some people are really bad sinners and some aren't that bad, that this woman, she's a really bad sinner. And Simon, he's just kind of a small, ordinary sinner. I don't think that's what the parables meant to teach. I think what Jesus is doing is he's speaking and teaching and acting commensurate with what Simon thought about himself. He thought that his sins were few, so he didn't love the one who can forgive sins. He didn't see his need. She knew that her sins were many, and so 
she knew that Christ had forgiven her an abundance, and so that was evidenced by her love. Now, um, the Roman Catholic Church, for many, 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 many hundreds of years, has taught that this passage teaches that Jesus forgives us because of our love. Because Jesus says her sins, which are many, are forgiven because she loved much. But the same Jesus that says that says that she was a debtor with nothing to pay. That, that was the whole point of the story. She didn't have anything to bring. This is why we love singing. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That woman is saying, I have nothing, but you have everything. She's not trusting in what she's doing. She's not saying, hey, if I love you enough, Jesus, will you please take that love and exchange that for forgiveness? Jesus is teaching that her love is the evidence and the effect of the fact that he did forgive her freely, that he forgave her all of her debts. You know, there's this beautiful thought that I just came across recently um, in the Lord's Supper, we're going to come to the table here in a minute. The love of Christ is displayed at the table. The grace of Christ is displayed. Everything that Jesus does to provide forgiveness is displayed. And yet there are warnings attached to the table, and we take those seriously, that uh, you shouldn't come flippantly, that somebody who's not a believer, um, they, they should not come and take of the bread and drink the cup. But we take that very seriously in our churches. Um, and yet there are Christians who love the Savior and who see the enormity of their sin. And because they see how sinful they are, they can start to think, maybe, maybe I'm not worthy enough. They can start to have wrong thoughts about what it means to take the bread and the wine worthily, appropriately. They start to, they start to think um, of themselves in too many categories of shame and, and not thinking about the Savior and his graciousness enough. And there's a story of a Scottish theologian named Rabbi Duncan. He was not, uh, he was not a Hebrew. Uh, he was not a Jew. Rabbi Duncan was Scottish. His name was John D Duncan. He was an Old Testament professor of theology. And because he was an Old Testament prof professor and a master of the Hebrew scriptures, they called him Rabbi Duncan. And Rabbi Duncan was ministering the Lord's Supper. And in Scotland in those days, there would be a big table that was set, and the congregants would come down to the table, and they would sit around the table because it was a meal, and the minister would come down, and he would officiate the supper from the table. And as the story goes, there is a woman in Rabbi Duncan's congregation, and she is one who he knew to be a very sincere believer, one who was one of the mature uh, believers in that congregation, and she took the cup, and uh, she stared at the cup, and she sort of trembled, and she put her head down, and she passed the cup on without drinking from it. And Rabbi Duncan saw what was happening, and so he walked from around the table. I like this. He took the cup from whoever it got passed to. You wonder what that guy was thinking. And he put it back. <laughs> He's probably like, oh, no. And he put it back in the hands of this woman. And he said, take it, woman. It's for sinners. Take it, woman. It's for sinners. Um, 
Jesus here is really teaching that uh, you're to take him. He's for sinners. I am sure if you put my life up on this projector, you would see me run as fast as I possibly could out of this building. And if you saw everything that I ever did and everything I thought, I could never look at you face to face again. And I'm sure that's true about you too. I'm sure of that. Um, And sometimes when we acknowledge that, we can start to think, I've outsinned the grace of God. You know, there's a breaking point. And, And I've done it, and now I'm not forgiven. You know, here's the really beautiful thing about this account. Jesus is going to tell her, notice this, he says, he who's forgiven much loves much, he who's forgiven a little loves little. And then verse 48, he said to her, your sins are forgiven you because she trusts in him. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. As morally reprehensible as this woman's life was, Jesus says, all of your sins are forgiven. And here's the really amazing thing. Jesus could only say that to her because he would go to the cross and he would be nailed to the tree and all of that woman's filthy lifestyle would be placed on him and all of my filthy lifestyle would be placed on him and imputed to him and all of the wrath of God that I deserve would be poured out on him as he hangs on the tree. And it's not this woman's tears and the shedding of those tears, it's the shedding of Jesus' blood that forgives the sins of this woman. And it's the shedding of the Savior's blood that forgives your sins and my sins. As enormous as they are, as many as they are. And when we realize that, and we flee to him and we own him, we own him, our lives start to reflect that we know we've been forgiven because we start to love much. We start to love much among his people. We start to love much to those who hurt us. Um, We want to use our resources. We want to use our time. We show our devotion to the Lord Jesus. Our lives are transformed by his grace. I want to leave you with this thought. Uh, John Calvin uh, says, Until a favor has been received, it cannot awaken gratitude. Until a favor has been received, it cannot awaken gratitude. Until Christ forgives, it will not awaken in us a response of grateful love. You know, um, I was thinking about the hymn writer, just in closing here this morning. um, We sing, alas, and did my Savior bleed here quite, quite often. And there's that last line that I think really captures this. Drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of oh I love. Here, Lord, I give myself away. That's all that I can do. This woman's giving herself to Christ. She's giving her love to him because she's received the benefit of forgiveness. Um, If you're in Christ, I want to just exhort you this morning. Your life should reflect that you believe you have been forgiven of massive debt. One of the reasons when we 
uh, say the Lord's Prayer. In some churches, they say, forgive us our transgressions as we forgive those that transgress against us. I prefer forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors because we are indebted to God for all of our sin. And he freely forgives it because of the sacrifice of Christ. And our lives should then reflect that. People should be able to say, that's a man, that's a woman who knows that he or she has been forgiven. That's what Jesus is teaching. People should be able to look at your life and say, that's a man, that's a woman that knows that he or she has been forgiven. If you're not in Christ, um, please see what the Savior is like. See how he welcomes the worst. See how he, see how he warmly invites the worst of the worst to himself and freely forgives and then defends and sets this woman out as an example. He takes the most sinful woman and makes her one of the greatest examples like that by his grace. She's automatically useful. Her life is useful. 2,000 years later, this woman's testimony is still useful. It doesn't matter what you've done. Go to the Savior, flee to him, acknowledge your debt, acknowledge his sacrifice, own him for yourself. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would give us a new sight of your son. We ask that you would help us to take these things to heart this morning. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see both the greatness of our sinfulness, the debt that we owe to you, and the enormity of the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that is found in Christ. We pray that you would prepare us to come to the table this morning with those thoughts both about ourselves and about your son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.